0: please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. So, it has been a week since... Uh, Or it's been over a week since we have been here in Revelation chapter 2. And so I want us to read the passage once again as we're dealing with the church in Smyrna. And so in verse number 8, this is what Jesus says to them. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So we've been looking at the churches here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3, after we went through our long introduction in chapter 1, concerning the context, but even more importantly, the character of the one who is given the message, who is Jesus Christ. And now we are looking at the recipients of the message of Jesus Christ, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at the first church, the church of Ephesus, and we were reminded to return to our first love, just as they were admonished there in the first century that they, were, that they had lost their first love. And, of course, we are living in a time where many Christians... Many churches have lost their first love. We have lost our fervent love for God and Christ and his church, and we are now committed to so many other things, and we need to repent and from where we were fallen and do the first works. And now we've been looking at the church of Smyrna, which is pretty interesting because we see... How that Jesus tells them that he knows their works, their tribulation and poverty. But then in parentheses, notice he says, but you are rich. Now, I know we like and we hope, and I doubt if we, we won't get there this morning. But, you know, the next phrase is pretty controversial. And I'm sure that's where our mind gets focused. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan And everyone's like, I wonder what he's going to say there, right? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I still want to park here for a little bit longer as we have considered the works and tribulation and then the poverty to a certain degree. But I want to consider that a little bit more in depth as he says, but you are rich. So the Lord understands and he knows our situations just like he understood the situation there in Smyrna. He knew their works, both good and bad. The tribulation that they were going into, of course, here it is being stated in the positive, that they were working, that they were actually engaged in the good works that we have been created for. And he says he knows their tribulation and their poverty, And he's talking about their economic poverty. The first century Christians many times suffered great economic hardship. Listen, when you're an outlaw of the state, it's hard to work a nine-to-five job. Right? And so, they were under extreme persecution. As a matter of fact, most of your Bible publishers will we'll have that heading above this passage of scripture the persecuted church and the church of smyrna was in great persecution great tribulation and so in the midst of persecution and tribulation usually comes poverty We understand that the purpose of government in Romans chapter 13, according to the inspired word of God, that was delivered by the apostle Paul, that the role of gov, uh, the, the role, the purpose of government, primarily, the purpose of government is to restrain evil and to promote righteousness. When the government does not do that, and they put it in. You know, they flip-flop it, and they're restraining righteousness and promoting unrighteousness. It's hard to prosper if you're the righteous, right? And so that was the situation in Smyrna. They were being persecuted, and as a result, they were suffering financial difficulties, But yet here, Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. We have been so dumbed down and we have been so deceived, both of our own doings and, of course, influences without us, that the church and Christians have really lost sight on who they are as Christians. I mean, we have remarkable promises, by the way, that, should, that, that we are to walk in faith and according to faith and so forth. I mean, Paul tells the Philippians there in the first century, that God will supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He wasn't just talking about their spiritual needs, even though that's included. Paul talks a lot about the suffering, the physical suffering of the first century church, and he encourages them and exhorts them to walk in faith and to trust the Lord And that the Lord will supply all of their need according to his riches. So the Lord is concerned about our economic situation as Jesus acknowledges, I know your poverty. Out of all the things that could be mentioned, Jesus mentions their works, their tribulation, and their poverty. He's concerned about the spiritual and the physical well-being of his people. And we are told, we are promised, that God will supply all of our need. Now, as Americans, we need to really go back and... We are so dumbed down in language, right? Um, As a matter of fact, there's a war over language that is going on in our society. It's been going on for quite some time. But notice... God has promised that he will supply all of our need. We need to r- really understand what that word need means. It doesn't mean necessarily, right, that you are going to get a Lamborghini. That's not a need, right? That's a Pleasure. Isn't it? It's kind of like we in Sunday school. I forgot this because, you know, we had to move on and didn't have time. But we were talking about the fallen state of the world and what Jesus Christ came to do, which is recreation. That's spelled the same, except for the little hyphen, as Recreation. The hyphen makes all the difference in the world. Recreation or recreation. Um, unfortunately, we have forgotten to put the little hyphen there. And now all we have is recreation. Recreation is not needs. All of our life consists of recreation today in modern America. Everything's all about recreation. Recreation. You turn on the radio on Monday and they are counting down till Friday. Immediately, right? They haven't even been to work three hours yet. And they're already looking forward to the weekend. Because our whole worldview and our whole society and structure is all based upon recreation now. Recreation is a thing and it's an important thing. But actually, life is built on work. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Right? The whole order of creation is based upon work. And so we no longer view that. So we have trouble understanding this aspect of God supplying all of our need. Because we don't understand what needs are. And so we confuse them with our wants and our desires and our lusts and our envy because we don't have a proper understanding of what need means. But we are promised that as Christians that God will supply all of our need according to his riches and glory because our God owns everything, right? He owns it all because he is the creator of it all. And so... We need to understand, uh, have a proper understanding of what needs are. But we also need to understand that God did, that God has created this whole world and everything in it for us to enjoy. We have been so influenced by asceticism. And there are aspects, uh, things that we are to deny, right? We're to deny sin. There is never a justification for sin or sinful behavior. But God gave us the things in this world that he created for our enjoyment. In First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who, hear this, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Who was it that in the Bible that was touch not, taste not, handle not? That was the Pharisees. Right? So, we need to have a proper understanding of poverty and riches, needs, and so forth. But notice, he says that even in their poverty, they are rich. And so, we mentioned, I believe, last time we were together, that true riches are found in Christ and so here they were being they were stated here that they are rich and we understand that from a biblical context to mean that they possessed a wealth that surpasses the even the fleeting treasures of this world because they have Christ. But I want us to think upon this a little bit more. When he says, I know your works, your tribulation and your poverty. And then in parentheses, he says that you are rich. Christians really do not understand who they are and what we possess in Christ. You see, they were rich. Yes, they were suffering some of the consequences of war. Because that's what the Christian is engaged in. We are engaged in war, a war against the fallen nature, a war against sin, a war against the principalities and powers of the air who belong to darkness. We are in a war. We are to be soldiers of the cross. That's what it means, one of the things that it means to be a Christian. To be a warrior for Jesus Christ. To be in confrontation against this world that opposes God and opposes Christ and opposes the church. And so, you know, when you're in war, war, you may be a knight under the most wealthy king in the world. But when you go out under the commission of that king to go fight in battles, no matter how rich and wealthy your king may be, you're going to suffer hardships. When you're out in the field, when you're out in the battle, there's going to be times of hunger and distress and coldness. there's going to be times of lacking, there's going to be times of suffering but you're still rich. And we are rich as Christians because we have been blessed. Not only with every spiritual blessing, but we have been blessed with every possession of Jesus Christ. So we have focused upon the spiritual blessing side of it. But now let's give a little bigger picture uh, view of the situation. When Paul was recounting his conversion to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26... He is recounting the part where God is sending him to the Gentiles. And for this purpose and for this reason, Paul says to open their eyes. To open their eyes. Why? There's something they're not seeing. There's something that they don't understand. And so Paul was sent so that they might understand, so that they might see, so that they might know to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light this is the same purpose and message of the gospel for today now i know we've been modernized but that's the purpose of the gospel it's to open blind eyes to turn people from darkness to light And then he says, and from the power of Satan unto God. Because outside of Christ, the prince and power of the air is Satan. And he has the rule and reign over those knowingly or unknowingly to them who are not in Christ. To turn them from the power of Satan. In other words, Satan has them in bondage. Under His control, to turn them from the power of Satan unto God, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. That's the spiritual side of this. But I now want us to notice, and so we could talk. All, we could continue to talk about how, in their poverty, they are rich because of the spiritual riches they possess. And we do, we possess many spiritual riches in Christ. But Paul then says this, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance. So there's something that they're going to be inheriting. And inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul also says this. As he's taking the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He says that the Gentiles. Should be fellow heirs. Now in this particular passage. He's talking about fellow heirs. With the Jews. That they should be fellow heirs. Heirs. Actually, I should state that even more clearly because people automatically start thinking about Jewishness in light of today. That they should be fellow heirs with the saints of the old covenant. That that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, In Romans, Paul goes on to explain, therefore, because of the forgiveness of sins and the redemption that we have in Christ, he says that we are no longer debtors to the flesh, to the old man, to the fallen man, to the sinful man, to live according to the flesh, to live according to the fallen desires. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, or if you live according to Adam, if you live according to the old man, if you live according... To the fallen state, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Talking about that mortification of the flesh, the old man. To put away the old man and to walk in the new man, which is Christ. And then he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? It is... A son of God. Not only do we not live like it. We really don't much think of it. Through Christ. We have been adopted. Into the family of God. And therefore we are the sons of God. The Apostle John in his epistle says now are we the sons of God. You know going along with some of the stuff we've been talking about in Sunday school see that's what Christians want to do today. We want to put it off into this other mystical realm. But no, now are we the sons of God. We are a part of this recreation. A recreation of this world, a recreation of mankind, both physically and spiritually. We are the sons of God. But we don't walk like it. We don't talk like it. We don't look like it because we really don't want to be it. We just want to make sure That we have our insurance card. So that we don't get burnt. But no. We are called to be sons of God. We are children of God. And if we are children of God. Then we are Paul says heirs. And then he says heirs of God. Whatever God possesses his children are going to inherit. Think of that. Whatever God possesses, whatever God owns, his children are going to possess it. They're going to inherit it. They're heirs. And we're joint heirs with Christ. You know, the book of Revelation spends a lot of the time talking about us ruling and reigning. With Christ, right? We're joint heirs with Christ. Now he says, if indeed we suffer with him, Jesus Christ didn't inherit all things. He, <laughs> he wasn't one of them rich American kids. Whose father is extremely wealthy And he just gets handed everything to him. In other words, Paul's saying, Jesus wasn't a spoiled brat. No, he had to suffer in order to inherit. And we have to suffer if we're going to inherit as well. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. But the fact of the matter still remains. We don't understand that. Now Jesus is simply reminding them of that because it's just a little statement in parentheses, "I know, I, I know your works and I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty, but then in parentheses, he says, "But, but you're rich." Don't forget, you're an heir." Don't forget you're going to inherit all things. Don't forget you are the sons of God. You are the children of God. Don't forget you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. If you suffer with him, that you also may be glorified together with him. Paul says to the Galatians, You are no more a servant but a son. You've been adopted into the family of God. And don't misconstrue anything I'm saying. I'm not saying that we are begotten sons of God. We are adopted. That's the whole doctrine of adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. But the fact still remains that uh, we are a son and so paul says and if a son then a then an heir of god through christ see when you are adopted it's just as if you were the physical son that's why we've been why it states in scripture that we share in the divine Because we have been adopted. No, we we did not possess the divine nature of God. We are not the offspring of God in that sense that we are divine. But we were man who was in rebellion against God. But because of his great love for his creation, he... Allows us to share in Him. So it doesn't matter, right? So if you adopt a child, now sometimes you may have to give context to people, you know, but no one goes around saying, as they're introducing their family, oh, this is my son, Frank. This is my son, Timmy. And this is my adopted son, George. Right? No, what, what do you do? This is my son, Frank. This is my son, Timothy. And this is my son, George. George. What, he possesses all things, right? Everything that's yours is his. Title, status, wealth, everything is his. And so it is with us. We are sons of God. We are heirs of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, it doesn't matter if you got physical lineage or not. When you're adopted, it's just as if you did. And so, you're Abraham's seed. You are sons of God. Therefore, you're rich. We then are heirs according to everything that has been promised. So I ask you, what has been promised? All power. And all authority has been granted unto Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. We are told in scripture that everything belongs to him. And that he is putting all enemies under his feet. Until he has taken possession of everything that has been promised to him by God the Father. And so when we think about that big picture of that, or when we think about all the different promises that we find in Scripture that the people of God have been given, all of those things are ours. All the things promised to Abraham are ours. We are heirs of what? We are heirs of the kingdom, according to James chapter uh, two and verse five. We have been chosen to be heirs of the kingdom of God, which Jesus or which God has promised to those that love Him. When Jesus came preaching, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." He was also telling His disciples. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're rich. You're the child of a king. All kinds of analogies we find in Scripture. Ambassadors. Sons of God. Why? Because whether we're talking about this world, life, or death, or things present, or things to come. Paul says, everything is yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And so, Jesus says this at the end of his revelations. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7. So he says here in the beginning to the church of Smyrna. Listen I know your works and your tribulation and poverty. But you are rich. And at the end of his revelation. He says this to give us the scope of what that means. uh, But you are rich. Rich. He says, He who overcomes. What oh, is he talking about? Talking about the beast and the dragon and the world. Right? Isn't that what the book of Revelation is about? He who overcomes. And they overcame him. Who? The dragon. By the blood of the Lamb. He who overcomes. Satan. In this world that is opposed to God, he that overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Smyrna, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. You know what he's saying in that little parentheses? Keep your eye on the prize. Keep working. Keep suffering. Endure the tribulation. Endure your poverty. Keep your eye on the prize. Because you are rich. Because the promise is this, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Father, we pray that you would help us to be overcomers. And Lord, we know that if we're going to be overcomers, that means that we have to work. We have to suffer tribulation and we have to endure poverty. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be overcomers through Christ our Lord. Because he is an overcomer. And he has overcome all things. And, Lord, we can have faith, trust, and assurance that through him we can overcome all things. Even though we look around the world today and we say, it's hopeless, we have been given the promise. That we will overcome this world. Your church shall prevail, even though it is splintered, even though it is divided, even though it has been deconstructed. The promise that we have is that your church shall overcome, it will prevail over this world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be dedicated to that cause, and that you would help us to be in the church, part of the church working and suffering the tribulation of the church and to be overcomers in making this world new, recreating where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. Lord, we pray that that would be our life's mission. And we have been so diverted by so many other things that we think life is all about. Help us to realize that our life is all about your kingdom. That our life is all about working for your kingdom. Advancing your kingdom. Building your kingdom. And transforming this world from darkness to light. So we pray that you would help us to understand who we are and the assignment that we have been given. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.